Good afternoon. We are recording later than normal with our victims to Victorious. I want to thank Scotty Reed, the engineer and founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Angel Fall. The title of today's show is March Madness. Are you angry about shootings? And what are you going to do about them? So we're broadcasting from Cleveland, Ohio. And if you've been following me since July, we have broadcasted from different parts of the country. Hopefully we will be broadcasting from uh, Chicago sometime in the future. So the title today's show again is March Madness. Are you angry enough to do something about it? And of course the reference here is the NCAA brackets for who's going to win the basketball tournament when you watch um, the um, Division One and two, two schools play. So I'm going to begin today's show with um, an article. I told you about the shooting a while back, but we're, the article takes a look at homicides in Cleveland, Northeast Ohio dip. In other words, the article says, while homicides in Cleveland, Northeast Ohio dip, the killing of children soared. We had a show just dedicated to um, the number of female, I'm sorry, the number, we had a show last month dedicated to, had three shows dedicated to the number of female victims who were victimized because of conjugal partner violence. Now we're taking a look at some of the children and um, we're gonna broaden it out as time allows. So Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio's homicide rate declined slightly in 2019. Um, I'm reading, if you're on the internet, uh, you can go to cleveland.com and follow me that way. Cleveland's homicide rate declined slightly in 2019 compared to the previous year, but the year was defined by significant increase in deadly violence involving children and young adults. Ten children under the age of 18 died in homicides in Cleveland last year. This article is from has a retrospective uh, analysis from 2019. Retrospective um, is a word that's often used in epidemiology, meaning you look back on previous cases. So 10 children under the age of 18 died in homicides in Cleveland last year, compared to seven in 2018. They are among more than 40 people under the age of 25 who were killed in homicides. That totally significantly outpaced the 28 killed in 2018. According to statistics from the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office, the Cleveland Police Department officially recorded 118 homicides in 2019, a dip from 120 in 2018. So I'm stepping away from the article. For those of you who follow me, um, two deaths, and I'm not minimizing the heartbreak or the tragedy, but two deaths in this ratio are, do not carry statistical significance. The city has topped 100 homicides in each of the last eight years. The Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office has not yet released its homicide totals for 2019 because the statistics are not final until autopsies are completed. Hopefully I'll be able to give you an update, um, but as of this airing, they have not been updated. At Cleveland.com, a review of medical examiner logs suggests the agency will report at least 126 homicides in 2019 compared to 130 in 2018. That's still not statistical significance. Police use FBI guidelines in reporting crimes and only tally killings that are determined 
intentionally as homicides. The medical examiner does not determine who is at fault while gathering statistics. The children killed in Cleveland include two siblings who died of smoke inhalation in an intentional fire in the Slavic Village neighborhood. A six-year-old struck by gunfire from a drive-by shooting into a home. An 11-year-old boy shot in the chest at a birthday party. I'm pausing here. An 11-year-old shot in the chest at a birthday party. Who could predict such a horrific outcome to cake and candles? You can't get more horrific than when you have young children involved in a homicide, City, Cleveland City Councilman Tony Brent Catelli said. During a news conference held after the July, July 11th quadruple homicide in Slavic Village, Brantelli's ward includes the neighborhood. If you're listening in a local Cleveland neighborhood, look who represents your ward. Call them on the phone. Email them. Their information is publicly available. Tell them you want to have a grassroots program to reduce gun violence. And the epidemiologist Lisa Rose, hyphen Rodriguez, has an article, has a couple articles on LinkedIn, and she will be able to come to your grassroots organization, organization and train you in one in several areas. But one area is interpersonal conflict, and we've mentioned that before in previous shows. Cure violence does not exist, does not have a program in Cleveland, Ohio. They have had pilot programs in New York, Baltimore, Baltimore, and Chicago, and they have really good numbers in reducing the number of homicides because the cure violence outreach workers are able to do something called violence interruption. Returning to the article on Cleveland.com, it's always difficult when innocence is lost, Mayor Frank Jackson said during the same news conference. Black males accounted for the lion's share of homicide victims, according to statistics from the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. Nearly 87% of homicide victims through November 2nd were black. A demographic breakdown of homicide victims is not available yet for the full year. Remember, when research is gathered, it's easily a two or three year lag time between the time you collect the data and you publish it. Two homicide cases involving children remain unsolved. Nayara, and if you know Nayara, and I'm mispronouncing her name, Call in or tweet me. Um, on Air Angel is on my Twitter feed. Nayara Lockhart, 15, was found shot to death October 23rd outside an abandoned home in the Glenville neighborhood of Cleveland. Also unsolved is the April 24th killing of Andre Bello, who was fatally shot while driving a stolen SUV on his 16th birthday. Here I have a caution of your listener. Let's not demonize the victim, um, even if he was driving a stolen car. Um, I want you to keep that filter away from moral judgment. But Cleveland cases involving juveniles do not include the, the December 19th death of Tamia Chapman, which occurred in East Cleveland. A car stolen in an armed car jacking struck and killed Tamia as a Cleveland police cruiser chased it into the suburb. A 15-year-old boy arrested after the crash, crash is charged with murder in connection with Tamia's death. And um, Cuyahoga County is a place, a jurisdiction, where if you commit a homicide and, I'm sorry, if you commit a felony 
and someone's killed while you're committing the felony, you can be charged with that homicide. Authorities are still searching for a second boy seen running from the car after the fatal crash. Uh, there's a picture on Cleveland.com of the four victims of the quadruple homicide in Cleveland's Slavic Village. Um, and um, three of them are children. Two, uh, one is a toddler and one is an infant. Father accused of killing two children, mother and a neighbor. The death of a Cleveland mother, her two children, and a neighbor devastated Cleveland's Slavic village neighborhood. Slavic, of course, refers to people from Eastern Europe, but all of the victims and the perpetrator in this case are African-American people who lived in that neighborhood. So the Cleveland Slavic village um, was devastated, returning to the article on cleveland.com, with hundreds gathering, gathering for a memorial vigil in the aftermath. The victims were Tykiera Collins, 25, Armand Johnson, 6, Aubrey Stone, 2, and David Cousin, 35. They were all found dead on East 63rd near Fleet Avenue. Prosecutors say the children's father, Armand Johnson, fatally shot his ex-girlfriend, Collins, before he set fire to her home. And he left his children inside, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Armand Jr. and Aubrey died of smoke inhalation, the medical, exam medical examiner said. Johnson Jr. is also accused of fatally shooting cousin, a neighbor who was checking to see what was going on. In previous shows, we often talked about collateral damage, damage neighbors, uh, other relatives, people who may just have been in the proximity of the bullet. Johnson Sr. faces 26 charges, including aggravated murder and could face the death penalty if he is convicted in the case. He's being held in Cuyahoga County on $5 million bonds. Um, the Slavic Village Flames were one of two quadruple homicides last year in Cleveland. Four people, including a pregnant, pregnant woman, were found shot to death. September 21st in the abandoned neighborhood in the city's Mount Pleasant neighborhood. Christopher Monroe, Dejan Wallace, 20. Christopher was 22. Ayanna Kitman, 19. Jasmine Lawson, 18, were found dead in the home on East 144th and Kinsman Avenue. Lawson was pregnant when she died, police said. Um, that is literally walking distance from where we are broadcasting now. Officers found the four dead in the third floor attic of a home according to police reports and medical examiner records. Officers also found gun, a gun next to the body. No arrests have been made. Detectives are still investigating what led up to the killings, which occurred in what police described as a, not, as a known drug house. Tyshawn Taylor, 11, was shot and killed at a birthday party inside an apartment building on Cleveland's east side. If you just tuned in, we're about 15 minutes into our our hour of Victims to Victorious. I'm our sound engineer, Scotty Reed. My name is Angel Fall. You can follow the blacktalkradionetwork.com uh, by going to the website. You can download um, archive podcasts. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, On Air Angel. And I do respond to direct messages. The title of today's show is March Madness. Um, when are you going to get angry about the killings, especially children? And what are you going to do about it? Here in Cleveland, where we're broadcasting from today, 
Uh, Tyshawn Taylor, 11, died after being shot November 23rd at a birthday party in the city's Huff neighborhood. That's spelled H-O-U-G-H for our internet and um, podcast listeners. A 15-year-old boy shot Tyshawn in the chest at a home on East 97th Street near Chester Avenue. I just want to say that that particular area of Cleveland, Ohio, is um, undergoing an, an extreme uh, regentrification. Cleveland Clinic owns blocks and blocks of that building, and there's new construction. And um, of course, with the regentrification, many of the people who've lived there for generations are being pushed out because of unfair uh, practices. So the irony of this should not fall. Um, without uh, understanding to the listeners. Tyshawn was a student at Chambers Elementary School in East Cleveland. Family members said he loved basketball, the video game Fortnite, and hanging out with his friends. The 15-year-old boy pleaded guilty to reckless homicide December 19th in Cuyahoga County Juvenile Court. He is scheduled to be sentenced. At the time of the writing, he had not been sentenced. Now, I mentioned Lyric Lawson in a previous show last year. Drive-by bullet meant to intimidate shooting witness killed six-year-old during sleepover. Six-year-old Blair Lawson was slain on October 5th by a drive-by bullet as the little girl slept on a mattress in her living room during a sleepover with her siblings and cousins. Prosecutors, and when I first uh, recorded the show shortly after her death, no one had been found. But since then, um, prosecutors have pinned the gunfire on 21-year-old Rayshawn Howard, who's, who has pleaded not guilty to charges including aggravated 22 shots from a semi-automatic rifle. Police also believe a second man who has yet to be identified participated in the shooting. Police say that Howard and the other man shot up the home in an attempt to intimidate a man who survived a um, shooting. Tar, I'm sorry if I mispronounced the names. Tor Tolveris and Waller, 25, died in that shooting, and Tyrone Lanny, 25, survived. Lanny lived at the home with Lyric, but had moved out shortly before the shooting. Trio White, 25, was charged with aggravated murder in Waller's death. He has pleaded not guilty in his awaiting child. trial. Again, if you just tuned in, uh, the title of today's show is March Madness. When are you going to get angry about gunshot homicides? So we're looking at some unsolved homicides and particularly heinous. These are homicides of children from the toddler age group to teenagers who have been victimized by gunfire. Nayara Lockhart found dead in an abandoned field. Police in Texas are still trying to find out who killed 15-year-old Nayara Lockhart by shooting the girl multiple times and leaving her body in a field on Empire Avenue near East 93rd Street, and this is in Cleveland, Ohio. A passerby found the girl's body lying in a field next to an abandoned home at about 8 a.m. I'm stepping away from the article. Those of you who have been following me since last year 
know that I did a segment where we looked at neighborhood blight, abandoned buildings, especially there was a program in Philadelphia where when neighborhood blight is seen as a background for homicide and violent crimes, and then the neighborhood is cleaned up, housing code is enforced on landlords to remove trash, board up buildings, the crime rate goes down because then they're not places to dump bodies and create rape, to commit rapes and murders. So removing neighborhood blight, if you're a grassroots person and listening, what would be a cost-effective way to help to reduce gun violence? That might not seem apparent to you, but it has good data. And you can send me a message on Twitter, on Air Angel, and I can send you back the articles or even point you to the archive on blacktalkradionetwork.com where you can listen how we discuss how cleaning up the neighborhood, removing abandoned buildings, removing trash, um, making the neighborhood more pleasant by cleaning, cleaning up parks and people coming outside and interacting with, it, with each other has a statistical impact on gun violence. So this 15-year-old girl was found in an abandoned field in Cleveland, Ohio on Empire Avenue near East 93rd Street. A passerbyer found the girl's body lying in a field next to an abandoned home at about 8 a.m. on October 25th. Police discovered she had been shot multiple times and launched a homicide investigation that as of the writing of the article remained unsolved. The county's medical examiner later said that the girl had been shot in the head, body, and lower right side. Niera had frequently run away from home before her death, and her guardian at Lightham told the plain dealer that the girl had had a tumultuous childhood and been diagnosed with mental disorders and had frequently been sexually abused. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley said he believes an outside agency should investigate a deadly shooting that led homicide detectives to Mayor Frank Jackson's home. O'Malley calls out police brass over homicide staffing. Last year marked the sixth consecutive year that Cleveland tallied at at least 120 homicides. But the number of detectives assigned to the police department's homicide unit during that period dipped from the budgeted 23 to a low of 13. That's almost 50%. Detectives in October, meaning each detective was responsible for investigating nearly 10 homicides annually. A national police group recommends that homicide detectives handle no more than six cases. So with that, um, just analyzing the article, with that drop from 23 to 13, that meant that people were handling three or four cases, and now they're handling six or so. With a drop in homicide detectives, the department's solve rate for killings plummeted from around 77% in 2016 to about 50% in 2018 and 2019. The national average solve rate is about 66%. Now, we've mentioned that before, that these, these urban homicides have a poor solve rate. There are a couple reasons why they have them. Um, if you are a fan of 48 Hours that comes on television, you will notice that when the people are, are victimized and the police do bring someone into questioning, that person, be they male or female, usually is very reticent 
to give out information because they live in the neighborhood and they may have interactions with the people who have committed the felony homicides, but those interactions are not necessarily negative. Um, the people who committed the homicides against someone may not really be dangerous to them. Or there is a gang in, in, a gang affiliation, or um, the people called in as um, persons of interest, they may be reticent in describing what happened because they're actually going to take revenge. Cure Violence does something about that, the program Cure Violence. So when you look at the solve rate, what can you do if you're from a grassroots organization? Well, you can, uh, you can, um, you can lobby your local representatives. You can call and simply ask and advocate. If you know someone who has been murdered, make yourself a pest at the police station with the detectives. Um, if you live in this neighborhood that is, uh, you know, if, that the social code is don't snitch, maybe you're a person who's brave enough who says, why don't we go ahead and um, inform the police and cooperate the police with the police so that we can have closure. So right here in Cleveland, where we're broadcasting from uh, today, and hopefully in the future we will broadcast uh, from other places, including Chicago and New York. Uh, going back to the article, 23 to a low of 13 detectives is what it was reduced to. And I just read that a national police group recommends that homicide detectives handle no, no more than six cases a year. With the drop in homicide rate, homicide detectives, the department's solve rate for killings plummeted from around 77% to 50%. These circumstances led prosecutor Michael O'Malley to criticize the department for understaffing the department and called on them to add more detectives to a unit that was hardworking and effective but burned out by the pace of homicides in the city. The overwhelming majority of the victims of the city's homicides in 2019 were black. And that has been our mantra. That has been our hypothesis. That has been our theme each and every show. That African Americans are overrepresented in the homicide rate, especially African American males. Cleveland Police announced a few weeks ago after O'Malley's comments to Cleveland.com that would be adding four officers to the homicide unit and the fifth was returning from medical leave of absence, bringing the unit back up to 18 detectives. Again, that doesn't really change. That's not really changing much. Um, but what we can see is that there is an attempt to get more, more people on board for the solve rate. So what impact does solving crimes have on the number of murders, you might ask. And remember, on Victim to Victorious, we routinely look at public health models. So if you are a public health official or an epidemiologist, you're looking for a cure. So in other words, when a, an epidemic is solved, you're hoping that in the slim chance that you have to go backwards, and those are epidemics that have been solved, like polio, for instance, that you have gathered enough body of knowledge that if you get a new case, 
uh, which is the term is prevalent, that you're able to stomp it down and, and quash and squash it as soon as possible. Obviously, this is not a show in epidemiology, but the coronavirus is already out of control because the isolated cases were not solved quickly. And when you work in the public health field or epidemiology field, you look at how you solved or eradicated the virus and use that to prevent further epidemics. That has not been done with the coronavirus. So I'm just throwing that health, public health model out there to remind the listeners that people who work at Johns Hopkins and other famous institutions that deliver healthcare believe gun violence is an epidemic and it's a particular epidemic in the African-American community. Reading from USA Today, unsolved murder, Chicago, other big cities struggle, murder rate is a national disaster. And you can find that article on usatoday.com. After 72 people were shot within one weekend in Chicago, and this article goes back to when Mayor Rahm Emanuel was there, um, that for years, Adduck, a former coroner living in the South, has been sounding the alarm to police, brass, and anyone else who will listen. America's big city police problems are mired in a cold case crisis. The national murder clearance rate, the calculation of cases that end with an arrest or an identification of a suspect who can be apprehended, fell to 59.4% in 2016. Once again, retrospective case analysis causes, causes you to look at data that's two and three years old. So even within the nation, this is, a, this is not a high rate. Less, well, in this case, 59.4% can be rounded up to 60%. So the question would be, if you're a listener, why isn't, why isn't the solving rate 80%, 90%? The data tells a grim story of thousands of murders in which no one is held accountable. Ed Talk said. If we don't address it, the issue is just getting to get worse than Ed Doc, who recently started the Mid-South Cold Case Initiative, a nonprofit that aims to provide assistance to departments looking to bolster their cold case units. Remember the prosecutor O'Malley in Cleveland? He might be able to benefit from this. The hole in just keeps getting deeper and deeper. The issue of murder clearance rates it's in the spotlight as Chicago officials struggle to solve gun violence that's plaguing the city. But the nation's third largest city, which only cleared 26% of its homicides in 2016, is just among many big cities struggling to quickly solve gun crime, according to the FBI data and crime experts. Um, when this article was written in Chicago, more than 70 people were shot that weekend, including 12 fatally, but only a single arrest was made so far from the dozens of shootings over a 60-hour period. The title of today's show is March Madness. I'm going to um, throw it over to Scotty, who's going to take us to a station break. And Scotty, can you also give the um, phone number in case anyone wants to join the conversation. Sure, that phone number is 704-802-5056, 704-802-5056.
Black Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Okay, thanks for that station ID. Please continue to support the blacktalkradionetwork.com and the Black Talk Radio Project. And um, you can click on the button to um, subscribe so that you can help us. This is a nonprofit platform where we focus on issues that are particularly pungent and appropriate and affecting the African-American community. If you wish to read some articles online about gun violence and how your grassroots organization can um, learn how to stop the gun violence, you can go to LinkedIn and click, click on Lisa Rose Rodriguez's page and you'll see a couple of articles about reducing um, gun violence by increasing the interpersonal skills uh, that could be used during conflict management. The title of today's show is March Madness. When are you going to get angry about gun violence in your neighborhood? So um, why do so many murders go unsolved? Getting away with murder, almost half of all potential prosecutable homicides go unsolved. Murder with impunity, these are a a bunch of articles um, that you can find on the web. I'm going to take a look at the most recent article. It is called Most Violent, a more recent article, Most Violent Crimes in the U.S. Go Unsolved. You can find this at C.org. So if you just tuned in after the hour, we were talking about several unsolved homicides of children, several cases of homicides that involve children here in Cleveland, Ohio. A few of them were papered, a few of them were not. Then we took a look at the Chicago statistics, which are always in the forefront of the gathering of these homicide statistics. Well, for instance, we found out that in a weekend last year where 70 people were shot, only one person was charged. So C is the Foundation for Economic Education. That's where we're reading from in the last 30 minutes of the show. Most violent crimes in the U.S. go unsolved. According to FBI data, only 45% of violent crimes led to arrest and prosecution. One of the central arguments in favor of the government's monopoly on police power is that the government police are essentially in keeping us safe within the thin line between chaos and order. We are told society will descend into chaos. The police have retreated to the claim that their real role is simply to enforce the law. And we have addressed this, not necessarily directly, but in the Cure Violence Project, when the police are notified of people who may potentially commit violence, they they may be able to arrest people, but they have other skills for eradicating and pushing the violence down. How exactly does, returning to the article, how exactly disorders maintained by police, however, is less clear. In recent years, police agencies have insisted they have no obligation to directly intervene to protect people from threats posed by criminals. Now, if you're sitting in an area that is plagued with violence, one of the things that you know from living in the inner city, the police respond to gunshot calls. But the police don't respond to a lot of other calls when you live in an urban area. 
because all their resources are focusing on the, the gun shops. So if um, smaller arguments, burglaries, there are some jurisdictions where the um, dispatcher takes a call and the police don't show up. Low conviction rates. According to the most recent FBI crime in the United States report, only 45% of violent crimes lead to arrest and prosecution. That is less than half of violent crimes result in what is known as a clearance of the crime. Property crime clearances are much more worse. Only 17% of burglaries, arsons, and car thefts are cleared. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the nationwide conviction rate for murders is 70%. 70%. Now remember, we're talking about who makes up the victims of the homicide. So most of the victims of homicide are African American and male. But the um, epidemiology language um, is that they are overrepresented. So if they're overrepresented, in the homicides, and these homicides are not being papered or solved, um, they are more likely to be underrepresented in the clearance rate. I hope I explain that again. So, if most homicide victims in these large urban areas are African American, and they, there isn't someone found, prosecuted, and sentenced for killing them, then that means that their crimes are not being solved, and therefore their victimhood, their victimhood is not being honored. And I would conjecture, I would conjecture here that it is in fact because of race. Returning to the article on Foundation for Economic Foundation, among violent crimes, homicides experience the highest clearance rate by far, at 61%. Aggravated assaults come in 53% and rape at 34%. But these are just cases where arrests are made and prosecutions are, prosecutions are initiated. A smaller number of cases actually lead to convictions. A crime may be cleared even when the suspect is later exonerated. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the nationwide conviction rate for murders is 70%. So, we may be looking at a situation in which every, for every 100 homicides, 61% are cleared, and then 70% of those cases, which actually would be just 43, lead to conviction. And this assumes that the correct person is convicted. According to some estimates, 4% of inmates on death row are innocent. Wrongful conviction rates are assumed to be higher for lesser crimes since officials are less rigorous in establishing guilt when capital punishment is not on the table. These are all aggregate estimates. Aggregate means a group, of course, but it's not outlandish to conclude from the available evidence that at least half of homicides don't lead to conviction of the guilty party. Convictions for other sorts of crimes are well below that. Moreover, clearance rates for homicides and other crimes are far below the national average in certain places, according to Peoria, Illinois' Journal Star. Quote from the article, the Murder Accountability Project was able to determine 
the state's 2015 clearance rate at roughly 30%. By comparison, Peoria cleared 40% of its cases the same year. Meanwhile, Boston Police Department recent, in, recent increase its clearance rate is slightly above the national average, but this, in the quotate, quotation of the article, followed a five-year period from 2007 to 2011 when homicide detectives had cleared only 148 of 30, 340 killings with a clearance rate of 47%, that's less than 50%. With so few homicides leading to convictions, it's not surprising that one criminologist has described the situation as a national disaster. That's the criminology, uh, criminologist language. And we are using the public health language here, which means this is still part of the public health issue. Just imagine when you're applying the public health model to what I'm discussing, that certain diseases come out, certain illnesses come out, people have certain symptoms, people have certain injuries, and the doctor's only getting it 30 to 40% of the time. Better police work can lead to better outcomes. Part of the reason that low clearance rates are alarming is that they create a condition that leads to further clearances in the future. For example, if witnesses believe that police are unlikely to actually arrest and prosecute the guilty parties, witnesses are more likely to be too frightened to come forward. The case of lesser crimes such as sexual assault and burglaries Many victims may conclude that the unlikelihood of a conviction makes reporting crimes not even worth the trouble. Police agencies are often quick to point out that many of these issues are beyond their direct co control. And some factors beyond police control can make some cases very difficult to investigate. If the victim was a member of a gang, for example, finding cooperative witnesses will be very difficult indeed. Indeed, if the crime was part of a drug deal, this makes things much harder for investigators as well. But there are also plenty of factors well within the control of police. As noted by researchers Anthony A. Brogger and Desiree DeSalt. And if you just tuned in, you can follow us on a fee, Foundation for Economic Education. Factors that are within police control and exerted significant influence on whether homicide cases were cleared included the actions of the first officer on the scene, response time less than 30 minutes, the notification of the crime lab and medical examiner's office, the number of detectives assigned to the case, detective follow-up on information provided by witnesses, computer checks on unsolved individuals and any guns in the case. Um, those are just some of the suggestions that have come up for us understanding why don't the cases get papered. And if you're listening and applying the public health model, you can see the more crimes that are solved, um, it may seem counterintuitive, but once there's a couple of benefits from solving the crime, and that is in public health issues where there's a pathogen or a disease, once you stop the disease and you know from each case where you've solved each individual person's um, contact with the pathogen or succumbing to, to the disease, 
In the real public health model, you're not expecting that person to get the disease again. So that's a thought for you if you were in your grassroots mood. How can you keep people from getting the idea of committing the violence? So um, better place work can lead to better outcomes is what the article takes a look at. And if you just tuned in, we have a little more than 15 minutes before um, the show stops. We are broadcasting on the Black Talk Radio Network. I'm Angel Fault, and this is Victims to Victorious. Um, our reference, March Madness, of course, goes to Research um, Research One Institutions. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, NCAA. Some are both, some are not. And so that we're taking a look at something and saying, you know, why are we revisiting this? Why does this have to have happen? Have, have to happen. So I'm calling you March Madness. Are you angry enough to stop gun, stop gun violence in your neighborhood? We were reading uh, from the fee.org, F-E-E.org, and we were taking a look at certain cities, Cleveland and Chicago, and I'm going to um, go back to some of the data about, um, I'm going back to some of the data about why these cases are not solved and how can that impact public health policies and actually reduce the number of homicides that are unsolved and further out reduce the number of homicides that occur. Um, so here's what I want to say about that. Police agencies are often quick to point out that many of these issues are beyond their direct con control. And some factors beyond police control can make some cases very difficult to investigate. If the victim was a member of a gang, for example. There are also plenty of factors well within the control of police. And I'm recapping this a little bit. So one of the things, according to B. Frost, J. Lucianovic, and S.J. Cox, they discovered that officers with the most arrests and convictions commonly responded most rapidly to calls for service where were better crime managers, were best at identifying, locating, and questioning witnesses, and displaying more of the characteristics commonly identified as relevant to successful investigators. In addition, force discovered that cases in which arrest was made within 30 minutes after the case was reported had the highest chance of resolution in a conviction. Force and others, that refers to the other researchers, also found that a relatively small number of officers make a disproportionate number of arrests that result in a conviction. Quality versus quantity, the Foundation for Economic Education looks at while they're trying to solve this problem. Remember, the public health model uses a variety of other disciplines to reduce the morbidity and mortality rates of gun violence. And because we are on the Black Talk Radio Network, we're particularly focused on the victims who are, in fact, African-American. Assigning more police resources to cases helps with outcomes as well, according to a report from the National Institute of Justice. The data indicate that a number of detectives assigned to a case is particularly important. Assigning a minimum of three detectives and perhaps four appears to increase the likelihood of clearing it. Clearing, of course, uh, being the name the lexicon for resolving, convicting, 
these crimes. The city with the consistently highest clearance rates also was a city that was more likely to devote 11 detectives during the initial days of investigation. In practice, however, few police departments are willing to devote this sort, these sorts of resources to most homicide cases. The most common rationale given for this intention to the most violent crimes is the police agencies already stretched too thin to address every crime. Also, sociologists and people who study racism also take a look at who is the victim. When the victim is African American and male in large urban areas, he comes with a stigma. All of us who follow social media, who follow the news, know that when there was a white female victim of a crime, social media, mainstream media, advocacy groups, they exalt the victim's status. So for many of us who study this, it appears that some of the African-American men who are victimized as homicide victims, their deaths go unsolved because the police don't value their victimhood. And that, of course, has been a theme of mine over and over again. What if most victims of homicide by guns were white and female? What kind of closure rate would we see? What kind of social advocacy would we see? Uh, there's a lawyer named Jim Lopes who has a movie called Race to Execution. And one of the things that he shows, he and his Harvard lawyers, including uh, Professor Ogletree, they show that most people who are on death row are on death row for killing a white woman. So in other words, the victim status class ilk, genre, etc., determines the punishment. Many people study this, and I'm sure if you've been following me, you understand that this is one of the things that's popping out from this. You know, three or four detectives to, to solve a crime when the victim is male and African-American is not cutting it. The clearance rate is abysmal. Returning to the article on C.org, um, criminologist Victor Capillaire concludes that per capita, police make 14 arrests per year. That's amazing, isn't it? Less than one of these arrests would have been for violent crime, and fewer than two arrests would have been for property crime. In fact, 12 of the arrests made by an average police officer would have been for petty crimes like minor drug or alcohol possession, disorderly conduct, and vandalism. Let that sink in for a second. This should not be shocking when we consider how police department work, departments work. From a professional standpoint, spending long hours on a small number of violent offenses is not a good way to move up the ranks. Police departments often base promotions and pay on numbers of arrests made in other metrics which drive personnel toward making easy arrests for easily observed offenses. Violent crime is low revenue. As noted by William Wagle in an article on police procedures, procedures, police personnel were driven by expectations for production of investigative reports and two or more arrests per week. Thus, cases are likely to lead to quick arrests for skins in which hard-to-solve cases were deemed routine cases given little attention. Many police agencies spent enormous amount of time tracking down suburban, suburban pot smokers while thieves and thugs go uninvestigated. 
from this perspective, busting a, king, a ring of skilled burglars or hunting down the gangland killer brings few advantages. Moreover, making a small number of homicide arrests doesn't help departmental revenues as do drug bucks, plus that can bring with them lucrative seizures through asset forfeiture laws. I'm going to explain that there are jurisdictions around the country in the United States of America when they pull over someone who they, and they discover a cache of drugs in the car or money, they actually get a percentage and it goes back to the police department. Many people frown down on this. And of course, it's clear, a clear way of corruption could ensue, but this is part of the motivation. So this article is um, uh, republished online with the um, offices of the Mises Institute. The author is Ryan McKaken, and he's the editor of the, Mi the Mises Wire. And you can find his article on uh, the cfee.org, cfee.org. We have about eight minutes to go. My name is Angel Fall, and we're looking at why is it that these homicides go unsolved. We began the show looking at very, very tragic victims here in Cleveland, Ohio that were mostly children. But the police are failing to catch most shooters in many big cities. And one of the reasons why I started out with the children is the children that I mentioned here in Cleveland, Ohio are in the statistic of the unsolved crimes. So like in other words, if you're listening, you can hear or make an inference that even though the, the victims are children, they are still part of the statistic because there is not a special unit, there is not a special focus on solving these crimes. And if these teenagers are African American, if these children are African American living in urban cities, they're, 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 their victimhood is not honored or revered. Many people who look at this feel that the, the theme or the sentiment is that the herd is being called. In other words, this is what happens when you live in the hood. This is what, happen, what happens to black people who live in the ghetto. All right, we've got a little time for another article. And of course, because we are broadcast nationally and internationally, I like to look at different regions of the country we spent some time in the Midwest, Cleveland, and Chicago, and I want to move over to Baltimore really quickly in the six minutes that we have. Uh, we normally do broadcast on Monday at 11 a.m. Sometimes technical difficulty or scheduling causes us to broadcast live at a different time. If you are listening now and you've missed any show, go to the blacktalkradionetwork.com. Look for Victims to Victorious. I'm going to read a little bit about a Baltimore homicide. Devon Wobble was shot for the first time as he was heading home from a cookout in West Baltimore. I want you to think of this as a movie. The mundaneness of sleeping in a sleepover. The mundaneness of eating birthday cake. And you end up dead or mortally wounded. The assault happened around midnight in June of 2015. It wasn't until sunrise that his security guard stumbled across him in a deserted parking lot. Little cell phone was gone, he would later say, along with his brand new Nike and his grill. The article said gold fronts from his teeth, but for African-American listeners, I'm going to say grill. Blood pulled from wounds on his head and shoulder as he laid. 
displayed on the pavement in his white socks. Little than 25 woke from a coma in a hospital a week later with a bullet fragment still lodged behind his left sinus. Doctors had temporarily removed part of his skull to relieve pressure on his brain caused by the swelling. He had survived the shooting, but his exposure to the lawless violence that ravages swaths of cities across America was not over. Here in the article, Devon is pictured with his daughter, Milani, and he, who was shot in the head. He was shot in the head in 2015. Discharged from the hospital, badly injured, and with his shooter still at large, so it became part of a cluster of nine shootings, all linked by a shared victim or suspect that would leave at least seven victims over the next 20 months. Some of them shot multiple times, and among the wounded was an eight-year-old girl hit in the crossfire as she played in the street. A toddler narrowly escaped becoming another casualty. Her grandmother found a bullet hole in her, sorry, found a bullet in her shoe. As the spiral intensified, Little would be shot a second time. He would also become the only person arrested and prosecuted for any one of the shootings a conviction he's appealing, insisting that he was railroaded by detectives by the detectives' perfunctory investigation. Another shooting in the string was quietly closed by naming a dead man as the perpetrator, then reopened after, trace, after the Trace and BuzzFeed News Press, the Baltimore police for the supported evidence. Don't you hear that theme there? They're overwhelmed, won't work, they don't. They don't want to spend the time. They're not promoted by, clo by closing homicides. The spate of Baltimore shootings illustrates a deadly problem in cities across the country. Systemic failure to solve gun crimes fuels widening cycles of violence, leaving shooters free to strike again, eroding trust in the police, and driving some victims to seek their own justice. A year-long investigation by the Trace and BuzzFeed News based on data obtained from 22 cities has found that in cities from coast to coast, the odds of the police will solve a shooting are abysmally low and dropping. Homicides and assaults carried out with guns lead to arrests about half as often as when the crimes are committed using other weapons or physical force. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? The odds of an arrest are particularly low when, victims, when victims survive, in part because those crimes tend to be assigned to detectives whose caseloads are exponentially higher compared to their colleagues in the homicide department who are often overburdened themselves. And here, these are the statistics I want to leave you with. The chances are even lower if the victims, like little, are people of color. When a black or Hispanic person is fatally shot, the likelihood that local detectives will catch the culprit is 35%. 18% points fewer than when the victim is white. And that is true statistical significance for those of you learning the public health and statistical language. For gun assaults, the arrest rate is 21% if the victim is black or Hispanic versus 37% for white victims. 
So I want to thank you for tuning into my show called March Madness. Thanks for following my shows in February about victims of domestic violence. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode on Victims to Victorious. I want to thank Scotty Reed, the sound engineer and the founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. Please uh, leave a comment for me when you listen to the archive show. And of course, I answer direct messages on Twitter, on Air Angel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.